0: But the story of Samuel is really not the story of Samuel. It's, it's in the middle of the story of Israel. And that uh, started, we started uh, uh, the book of Judges in September. And we started the book of Judges. People say, that was a dark book. That was a, a messed up book. And it was a messed up book. Remember the reason why it was a messed up book? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And the nation was a mess. <laughs> the world was a mess. So, yeah, we survived the book of Judges. And and then we went to Ruth, and we got this, okay, there's there's going to be, Christ is going to come, and he's going to save the world. You, you get the taste of it. You get the taste of love. And then we move into 1 Samuel, and we're still going, everybody does what is right in their own eyes, and the world is a mess. Well, I'm happy this morning that Samuel is going to give a sermon this morning that would change an the entire nation. In other words... The one sermon that would have fixed the book of Judges, that if everybody just went after that sermon, Judges would have just turned around instantly. We're seeing Israel start to turn around now, and Samuel all of a sudden takes the scene and then gives this sermon. And it's if you would just listen to this, if you would just perceive this, if you just obey this, if you would just grab a hold of this sermon that Samuel gives, <laughs> I'm give it this morning in his sermon, that Samuel gives. They want just pull the nation out of a miry clay. In fact, it's the answer. It's the answer to our country. It's the answer to our nation. And what's the opposite of it? Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And as everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, what's the concept of it? Even believers has creeped into our church. Is like, okay, yeah, we have God, but we still got to do what is right in their own eyes. And, and and the way we do it is that we take God and what we want is right in our own eyes, and we even put them together, and we try to manage uh, that together. Last week, I, last couple of weeks, I talked about this concept: is does God work for me? In other words, is Christianity is is it for me? And in the world right now, our culture is asking the question: Is Christianity for me? In other words, does it fit my agenda? Is it going to fix my family? Is it going to do something for me? Is it going to help me? Am I going to be healthy? Am I going to be better off in life? Is Christianity going to offer me something that's going to be for me? And if it's not, why would I believe it? That's the concept of our culture right now. If Christianity doesn't do anything for me, why would I believe it? There's only one reason you should believe Christianity. Remember what the answer is? One reason you should believe be a Christian is because it's true. That's it. It's because it's it's true. It's the way it is. What's true? This is what's true at the center of the Bible. I'm a lost sinner needing a Savior. Jesus left heaven. He came to earth. He died on the cross. He rose again for the forgiveness of my sin. He's my answer. That's truth. It's the way it is. Now we take that, and we throw it on the back burner, we forget about it, and don't even worry about that, because we got God, God's gotta work for us. He's gotta do things for us. And we even get sidetracked, even in our spiritual walk, in a sense of, you know, I'm gonna give everything away in this world, because I want to be the richest person in heaven. And, and all of a sudden, what are we doing? We're, everybody does what is right in their own eyes. This is what's right in my eyes, so I can do, be the most glorious person in, in heaven, and we forget this fact. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and 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 he's the answer. And so this non-truth, this truth getting thrown on the back burner has creeped into the church. And the way that it's creeped into the church is, is people show up at church to say, What's God gonna do for me? Does God agree with me? Does God is God's theology correct with my theology? You know, if God's theology is not correct with my theology, I, I wonder if it's wrong. You know, all of a sudden we see or start start using God more so than start believing in God because the word truth is 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 gone. Start of 1 Samuel we see that with Hophni and Phinehas they had possession of the Shekinah glory it means the ark of the covenant where God rests in his glory. They had possession of that covenant of the gospel where Jesus leaves heaven, comes to earth, and dies and raises again for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what the Ark of the Covenant stands for. They had possession of the truth, but they used it for their good and their glory. God was gonna have nothing to do with it. He was gonna have nothing to do with it. And we see judgment last week where they went into war. And as they went into war, They lost 4,000 of their soldiers, but they thought, well, you know what? we got to grab a hold of the ark because we're going to grab a hold of the ark. We can use it for the victory in the war. We're not talking about going to God and asking God to help me out. We're talking about going to the ark and getting the ark into the war and use it for our victory. Why? Because everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And this sounds like it could be right because it's happened before and we want to win. So therefore, they bring the Ark of the Covenant in. And what takes place as a result, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. Hophni and Phinehas die. Eli, the priest, ended up dying as well. And as soon as he heard that the Ark was stolen. And the Ark goes into the Philistine hands. And, and what do they do? Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Now we've got two gods. We have Dagon and we have the Ark. So let's take the Ark of God in Philistine. that's in Philistine's hands and let's put it to Dagon. Remember what Dagon was? He's a corn god. You kind of make a god out of anything. In other words, that's what pagan gods are. I want corn. I, you know, I want prosperity. I want money. You know, I don't want famine. I want corn. Therefore, I'll make a god out of it and get corn. But if I put the Ark of the Covenant next to my corn god, then I'm going to get a lot of corn. You know, that's, kind of how, that's kind of how they're thinking. It's taking God and they're using God to get more of what they want. God's going to have nothing to do with it. We saw the story last week. Dagon falls right down, place on the ground next to the Ark of the Covenant. They wake up and say, Well, it must have been coincidence. They put him back up. He falls down again, but then his head's chopped off. Dagon's head's chopped off. His arms are chopped off. And the only thing that's there is his trunk. They're saying, This was not coincidence. And then plagues started to hit them because God's bringing judgment on them. As plagues started hitting them, they start transferring the ark from city to city. God's not listening to us, God's not giving us what we want. Uh, God's a little bit out of control. I'm not able to control him. I'm not able to use him. I'm not able to make him function the way that I want him to function. You know, it kind of sounds like America a little bit. Doesn't it? It's like, God's not working the way I want him to work, so I need to change him or get rid of him. That's exactly what the Philistines were doing. And so they went from city to city to city and finally says, we just got to get rid of God, which again happens in America. God, if you're just not going to do what I want, I'm going to send you back home and throw you away. So they ended up sending the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. Well, finally, the Ark of the Covenant is in what? Is in Christians' hands or Israel's hands again. And they take the Ark of the Covenant, it's like, yes, we've got God. And what do they do with the Ark of the Covenant? They open the lid because they want to see what's in God. And all of a sudden, 70 people just die. It's like, wait a second. This is in our hands. It's our God. And God just wiped us out. What was the reaction to this? It opens up into our passage to give us the reaction of what took place when it killed 70 People, verse nineteen in verse our chapter six, and he struck some of the men of Bethshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, "Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall he go up away from us?" So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjathjearim. Saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. They took the ark of the covenant. They opened the lid. It killed 70 people. And they just all of a sudden start to question themselves. God does what he wants. God carries power that we can't control. God carries a a truth that is in his mind, his heart, his will. God is sovereign, just like that song, over us. And I can't manage him. I can't control him. I can't use him. I can't manipulate him. It carries power. And then these, these words who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Holy God. A God who is set apart. They're starting to even question themselves. The nation has been in turmoil but all of a sudden they get a hold of the ark of the covenant and you can't manage it what are you going to do with it so what do they do with it start at chapter 7 we see what they do with it and the men of kairagarium came and took upon the ark of the lord and brought it into the house of abinadab on the hill and then consecrated his son eleazar to have charge of the ark of the lord from the day that the ark was lodged at kairagarium a long time passed some 20 years and all the house of Israel's lamented after the Lord. What are they doing? They say, well, let's hide the ark. Let's put it away. Cairogerium is where they ended up putting the glory of God away because it carried so much power. And they put it in the hands of this guy named Eleazar. Now, who is Eleazar? Eleazar... Um, Josephus says that he was a Levite, but to live in Chirogerium is a pagan area, so he must have been sojourning in the area if he was a Levite. But we do know he's a spiritual man because what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to keep people's hands off the ark. He's supposed, to, he's supposed to make sure that people are not tampering with the Ark of the Covenant, not toying around with it, not playing with it. So he's the one that's keeping watch over it. So he was a man of, a man of God. How long did he do it? Look at the passage. It says 20 years. 20 years he did it. Okay, so we just started chapter 7, and 20 years all of a sudden just passed. After these 20 years were over, then they lamented after the Lord. They didn't lament for 20 years. They didn't mourn for 20 years. We don't know exactly what they did. Well, actually, we kind of do, because you'll see it in the passages. They went back to the foreign gods. <laughs> they went back to doing what was right in their own eyes for these 20 years, because you're going to see it in the passage. And they didn't find life out of it. They found death of going back to their foreign gods. And they remembered the God of truth. It's inside of our instinct, whether we believe in God or not, it's inside of our instinct that we know God exists and we know that he's truth and we know that we need him. This is what's going on in this passage. After 20 years, they mourned, And so we need God. We don't know what made them mourn. My guess is the instinct is what made them mourn. So after they mourned, what do they do? They went to Samuel in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord, because that's what they're asking to, this is how you do it. If you want to take the book of Judges and fix your nation, if you want to change your country, if you want to return to the Lord, in fact, if you want everlasting life, we'll even put it that way, if you want everything you need in this entire planet, this is what you do. You want to return to the Lord with all your heart, put away your foreign gods, the Astras, from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. Serve him only, and he'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away Baals and the Astras, and they served the Lord only. Returning to the Lord with all your heart. How do you do it? He says, Do it this way. Put away your foreign gods and serve him only. Make God the priority of your life. Make God the one that you worship. Don't tamper with him and other gods because as soon as you tamper with him and other gods, you're just gonna use him to get what you want because that's what the other gods do. The other gods give you what you want. Just make God solid in your life. The first person in your life. Then Samuel said, since you want to return to the Lord, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah. And they drew water, poured it out before the Lord and fasted on the day and said, there we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. All of a sudden the people confess, God, we have sinned. Look at the structure I put away our foreign gods and make God first. I'm going to serve Him only. God, I am a sinner. What kind of humility is that? It's not saying that I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. It's saying, God, I got to do what is right in Your eyes. And what You call sin is sin. What You don't call sin is, is not sin. And I am a sinner. You see what they're doing? They're just giving their whole heart to God through that one statement. I'm a sinner. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out for the Lord our God for help, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. and The Lord answered, as Samuel was offering up the burnt off, oh, and, and the Lord answered. I want to stop there. If anybody believes in God, I've got to say it's the Philistines. I mean, look, look at what took place. They all gathered at Mizpah. And when they gathered at Mizpah, what were they doing? They were turning to God. They were repenting. They said, God, we're sorry. You haven't been with us for 20 years. The ark of covenant has been gone. We're sorry. We're in need of you. And all of a sudden, there's a reaction from who? The Philistines. What do they react? They're like, oh my goodness, Israel's turning back to God. We better kill them before they get back to God. I mean, see, Philistines believe in God. They cannot, I mean, it's almost like Israel is building a nuclear weapon. We better attack them before the nuclear weapon's complete. That's kind of what's going on philistines are like they're turning back to god if they get god on their side we're doomed so what do they do they attack them when they're repenting that's what's happening they attack them when they're repenting and it says in verse um in verse uh uh, six or seven that the philistines were afraid why were they afraid it's because they didn't they weren't armed they're asking for forgiveness and all of a sudden the philistines are coming after them as they're asking for forgiveness and they have to come after because as soon as they ask for forgiveness they're going to get god they're going to be in trouble Philistines believe that there's a God and he carries that power. That's why they had to kill Israel. So they go after him. But what does Israel say? Israel says, We're not armed. Samuel, cry out to the Lord for help. All of a sudden you see a, they know where the power is at. They know where the power is at. It's not in my sword, it's not in my battle, it's not in my fight. Samuel, just cry out to the Lord for help as we're being attacked. What happens? Number 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near back to Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and he threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far below as Beth-car. All of a sudden, God showed up. The power of God showed up. Why? Because people were committed even with the statement, they didn't have time. God, we're going to put our gods away and choose you only. God, we're going to serve you and you alone. And then they, they, they pray and ask God to forgive their sins. And all of a sudden, the fire of God just shows up. And what? Protects them from the enemy. Just from that simple four pieces. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ele- Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. They called it, they took, look at this really closely. They, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, drawing a line. And as he's drawing a line, they call these stones Ebenezer. Now who's, who's Ebenezer? Remember who Ebenezer is? He's the one that's watching the ark. He's the guy that's been watching the ark for the last 20 years. But Ebenezer is not on the battlefield. Neither is the ark on the battlefield. But their belief in God all of a sudden is starting to drive something. It's not the ark. The ark carries a Shekinah glory. But God is working on the behalf even when the ark is away from them. God is the one that was doing the work. And that's why they called it Ebenezer. They gave all credit to God. And what happened? So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, from Israel, delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on to a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he went to return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Inside this passage, some scholars call it Samuel's Gospel. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but there's a churn of events. As a result of this gospel that Samuel put on the table. As a result of this gospel that he gave to the people. And then all of a sudden the people did what? They responded to it. And then the passage breaks up. After they responded to it, we see peace in the land and we see restoration take place in their land. But what was this gospel that Samuel said? This was his gospel that he said. Number one, put away foreign gods and serve him only. We saw that right at the top of the passage. You want to turn your heart back to God? This is what you do. Put away pagan gods. I want to talk a little bit about pagan gods. This is what an idol is. An idol is taking something good and making it the ultimate thing taking something good and making it the ultimate, making it your God, making it something that rules you, something that drives you, something that sends you. So when you look at the idols in the Old Testament, you see Dagon. What was Dagon? Dagon was a corn god. What's what is this resource of Dagon? Well, they want prosperity with corn. They want prosperity with food. They don't want to go into famine. People die in famine. The world is devastated with that, so you got to put a Put a deity to it so you can get what they want. See how they're using these pagan gods? I wonder how these pagan gods even came into structure. It's what they want in their heart. In the sense that you want this thing that's in their heart. They put a god to it and worship it. And it's supposed to provide for them. They put a god to it, worship it, and it's supposed to provide for them. Why did Israel worship Canaan gods? It's because they wanted something in their heart. And the pagan gods had it. What do they want? Baal was a god of, of life. talked about this last week. I want life and life fullest. Therefore, I've got to go after Baal so I can have life and life to the fullest. Astras is a god of beauty. I want beauty so I will go after the Astras. Astras is a god of joy and happiness and go through him. Goddess of love and goddess of beauty and goddess of sex and goddess of wine and goddess of war. What is a goddess of war? A god of war is if you want to win a war, you got to submit to your God to get it. So what happens, they're having obsessions that is in their their mind, it's in, in their heart, and they want it, so then they attach a deity to it. And then that deity is supposed to provide them with the obsession that they want. That's what it looks like when it comes to pagan gods. This is the idolatry that takes place. So then you have a deity attached to this idolatry, to what your desires are, which is sexual desires, beauty desires, a full life desires, happiness, joy, whatever it is. And, and then you have this deity attached to it. So what you do is you do what the deity tells you to do so you can get it. So you want a life full of sexuality or you can be sexually satisfied. Well, you, you know, you go to your pagan god and say, pagan god, what do, you, what do you want? Because whatever you want, you'll give it to the pagan god so he'll give it back to you. You see what's taking place and how this relationship works. And so all of a sudden, you, the pagan god would say, well, I want your time, you know? I want your, I want you to spend time with me, okay? So I'll spend time with you. Then it kind of gets a little more aggressive, and it says, well, I want some rituals to take place. So then you do the rituals, and then all of a sudden, you start getting something. No famine's taking place. So this is good. And then what else do you want? Oh, a famine hits the land. Then you really go to your pagan god and say, okay, Dagon, god of corn, we are a famine, hit the land. I want to survive. What do you want? And then all of a sudden you say, well, let's give some sacrifices. Sacrifices? There's famine. I can't give you a goat sacrifice. I can't give you a cow sacrifice. Dagon says give sacrifice. If you give sacrifice, famine will stop. So then they start giving sacrifice. And then what else do you want? The famine's not stopping, Dagon. Well, sacrifice your children. If you sacrifice your children, you're, so all of a sudden you're serving this pagan God, and he's robbing you of everything that you have, everything that you own. So you're serving these pagan gods because you want a sex life, or you want you know, um, sexuality, you want joy, you want happiness, you want food, you want prosperity, you want power. You're serving them, and all you're doing is increasing your appetite. You're turning into a complete glutton. And all of a sudden, these things are using you, it's making you, it's driving you, sending you, but you're too far in it to get out of it. So you can't really reject this pagan god because if you reject this pagan god, he's going to throw it into your face. you sacrifice sacrificed your children. I'm going to give you famine for many, many more years after that. See, what the point of these pagan gods is, Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. This is what's right in my own eyes so I can get this. And then these deities were put out there so they can provide them with that. But as soon as you get the taste of it, destruction, disorder, and death mark your way. That's how those pagan gods worked. And that's how they they owned you. And then once they owned you, you wanted to get close because you had to get close. but you didn't want to get close because you shouldn't get close. But you're so messed up that what do you do? Last week I was uh, trimming another tree. And uh, I told you a couple weeks ago, or last week I think it was, that I, I bought some cleats and I got the rope, you know, kind of how you call it, uh, um, uh, power lines. And, and I don't know really how to do it, but I'm having fun trying to, to do it. And I had this big fir tree, and I went to the highest that I've, I've gone so far. I climb up this fir tree, and I get up pretty high. And then as I get close to the fir tree... I start to get ants all in the back of my ears and in my neck and I started going in my nose and I start pulling back and I like being close to the tree and the reason why I like being close to the tree is because when you're leaning back like this it's kind of scary besides if you fall you know you got too much slack there so you want to get as close to the tree you can't but you don't want to get as close to the tree because the ants will take you and Sure enough, when I was up there trying to cut those branches off, I like, I just got to get this one branch off. I, I reached it around, and that was the time I was just hugging the tree because I couldn't even get it around, and the ants were calling over, it, and I just like, hurry, 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 and the tree limb finally finally fell off. But there's this mixed confusion that would really mess somebody up if you did that all the time. <laughs> you got to think of doing it. But that's what the Old Testament were doing. It was messing them up because... They don't want it, but they have to have it. They're in it too far. They can't get out of it. They turn into, all of a sudden, they have these rulers that are out there that they hate, but they can't pull out of. 1 Samuel 3, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods, the asterisk, from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Think of that grace. Think of that peace. Every single idol used you, abused you, owned you, drove you into destruction. And then they're hearing the words of Samuel, God will forgive you. Just pull away from the garbage. Just drop the garbage because they're the king of your life. They're the gods of your life. They're the idols that you have chosen and you are wrapped up in them. And as being a result of being wrapped up in them, I want to be the only one you're looking at if you want peace, if you want grace, if you want rest. That's what he's saying, get, get rid of them. Get rid of the idols. When we look at this passage, well, that's an Old Testament passage. Sure God, we don't have any idols here. Do we have idols here? Colossians 3, 5, Paul mentions our idols. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Which is idolatry. What does idolatry mean? It means an extreme and admiration, love, or reverence for. If you if you look at these, these are passions that rule us, that drive us, that send us. Sexual immorality is a passion that it's like, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. I want to get out. I want to get out. It's, it's, it's wrapped me up. It's just like the pagan idols that are taking place. Only we're not doing in the 21st century is attaching a deity to it. But they're out there because it's, I do what is right in my own eyes. And all of a sudden you do what is right in your own eyes. And then destruction starts to mark your way. And it starts to rob you. Israel lamented without God. And what did he do? He instantly took them back. But these things are, are owning us. Passions, our evil desires, our covetousness. They're moving us, driving us, sending us. God's saying, break those chains free. Break them free. Just say, they're not gonna own me anymore. My grace is sufficient for you. Come to me and I'll give you rest. That's exactly what Israel did. This was the instruction that Samuel gave them, gave them. And when he gave them, what did they do? They responded to it. Number two, the next point that Samuel makes is go to God through a Mediator you want to get connected to a powerful god that's like kind of glory even the ark of the covenant you're gonna to have to have a mediator it's it's so it's the way it is now we look at that and say a mediator what do you mean a, a mediator all the way through the old testament there's always a mediator that took place the priests were mediators so what they'd do is they were the ones that bring the blood in and put on the the um the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant for the people they were bringing mediation for the people that's who the priests were prophets were even mediators in a sense that God was not talking directly to the people. They were talking through individuals, and then they would speak to the people and say, this is what the Lord says. They were mediators as well. One of the chief mediators was was Moses. He was a very strong mediator before his people. In fact, his people said, we don't want God talking to us. God's carried too much power, too much glory. You talk to Moses, Moses, you come talk to us, and we'll get the law. Moses was a mediator. And when you look at this concept of, of mediator, it's a huge concept all the way through the Bible and into our time. Well, then we'll ask the question, well, who's our mediator? This is our mediator. We find it, Jeremiah 15.1. I just want to stay with Moses. I just got to read this passage. Jeremiah 15.1 says, Then the Lord said to me, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with his people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Here Samuel is being the mediator and he's even comparing him to Jeremiah. He's even comparing him to Moses. Samuel is standing before the people. All the way through the Bible you see this mediation take place. Our mediator today is found in Hebrews 8.4. Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see he said that you make all things according to the pattern which is shown to you on the mountain. But now he Who's he? I should have put it in parentheses. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry. By as much as Jesus is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on a better promise. We have a mediator today, and our mediator is Jesus. That's our, that's our mediator. Now, we don't like this concept of, of, of a mediator because this concept has been used and abused in fact, for a thousand years, I mean, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church, I mean, the, the Catholic Church has said, you've got to have a priest do mediation through Scripture. Jesus is not a mediator. We've got to teach you Scripture. No, the mediator is Christ today. All the examples of these Old Testament mediators are all just pointing exactly to Jesus. And that's why I threw it in. And what happened? Samuel ended up praying for the people as the mediator. Number three, next thing you do if you're gonna stand in the power of God is pray. I just have in parentheses, ask. First Samuel 7, five says, then Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. Now when we hear these words, these Bible words, um, we often don't put them in context of what, they're, of what they're really saying, and even context of the Bible. We hear the word pray, and we have an understanding of what the word pray is. But let's put it in a little context. When you look at idols, you never hear the Bible speaking of people praying to idols. In fact, search it, say, pray and idols, and you won't see praying and idols. What you hear is you hear the words worship, and you hear the words serve. Worship and serve idols. Now, what's the difference between worship, what is, what is worship and serve? Worship and serve is you're giving yourself away to them. Serve is that you give yourself away to them. You give yourself away to worship the idols. You give yourself away to serving the idols. But this word pray does not take place. Why doesn't this word take place? The reason why it doesn't take place when it comes to idols is because prayer is you ask. That's That's it. See, so what happens with, with idols is there's a quid, quo, pro relationship. I just want to put it what a quid, pro, quo means. It's up here on the screen. Quid means I will do this. Pro means therefore. Quo means God will do that. And see, with these idols, and like I just explained, that if you want more corn, you need to do this. If you want more sex, you need to do that. I mean, what you're doing is you're serving these idols. I will give you, therefore you will give me that. And see, Israel is so connected to this I give you this, you give me that. It's so connected all the way through the book of Judges that they've grabbed God and they're doing the same thing with God and then Samuel says, don't worship, serve, add this to it. Pray means ask. What does that do? That allows God to have all the authority. All of a sudden you're not ruling God, God is ruling you. If you just ask You're a person in need. If you just ask, you're going to a power that he's gonna do it if he has mercy on you, but it's his decision whether he wants to do it or not. You're not the one in charge. Quid pro quo, you're in charge. I do, you give me, oh, you didn't give me God, therefore I am in charge to hate you because you didn't give me. This concept of pray carries a power beyond our understanding. Because all you're doing is submitting before the Father, submitting before Christ and say, God, give me. God, help. Samuel prayed at Mizpah. The next thing he did is number four, approach God, power of God with humility, repent. What is humility? Humility is I shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be where? Well, you shouldn't be next to the Ark of the Covenant. You shouldn't open the lid. I mean, that's, that's what, you know, I should not be here. It's like, oh, there's a, a, a friction that takes place. Humility is, I shouldn't have this. That's what humility is. That's what humility thinks. What do you mean, I shouldn't have this? I should not have heaven. That's, that's humility. Humility is, I don't deserve this. That's what humility is. But then what does repent mean? Repent is regret. Remorse, I'm sorry, forgive me. So it takes place, you got those two that are happening. I shouldn't have, I'm sorry. And then what happens is salvation then comes your way. That's the power of the gospel. Many of us in America, even today, is like, well, God, you owe me. God, I should have. God, I've done. It's the same thing as idol worship but when you look at the concept of humility it's a concept i shouldn't have but god has done anyway that's what makes the gospel come alive i shouldn't have but jesus died so i can have that's your emotional connection to the gospel number 6 or verse 6 so they gathered at mizpah they drew water and poured it out before the lord and fasted on that day and said there we have sinned against the Lord drew water and poured it out before the Lord is a process of repenting that's what the statement is I am repenting I am saying I'm sorry I'm saying I'm, I, forgive me I'm saying, I'm saying I have remorse over it I'm saying I'm hurting as a result and then at the very end we have sinned and all of a sudden mercy and grace come their way they just connected with the power of God When they connect with the power of God, what happens? You should expect something. (laughs) What should you expect? Here's what you should expect. Number five, you should expect help. I should have said you should expect good help. Is what I should have said. The reason why is because uh, last week was uh, it was the last week to burn, and I had this huge, huge, huge brush pile. And I knew I had to burn it. It was getting later and later and later and I gotta burn it. I gotta burn it. I gotta burn it. But I had some visitors come over uh, visiting at my house and, and my daughter came pulled in the parking lot. And she came out there and she's visiting us with us and, and she took her keys and she put it on put it on a little table by a campfire. This is before I was gonna go out back and build the huge bonfire and uh, so we just continued to talk, continue to talk, and then I'm like I get up to leave and as I'm getting up to leave to go burn the big bonfire. Um, I saw her keys sitting on there because she took off and she left. I'm like, you know, for a nice dad would take care of her keys. So I picked up her keys and I put it in my pocket and then I went back to do my big burn pile. And when I started doing my big burn pile, I don't know, you get those things lit and it's just a massive amount of heat. And you got to get as close as you possibly can. So I'm taking a brush and I'm just throwing it and I'm throwing it and I burn all my eyebrows off. I burn all my whiskers off. I mean, it's just it's a bad experience. And this Keith had a lanyard that was just hanging out of it consistently. I put the lanyard back in my pocket and I just keep. And then I shouldn't even say this because it's supposed to be done at seven, but it was getting dark. And I was still trying to push and push and push. And, and uh, I finally got it done. And then I went to bed, and in the morning, I was out doing irrigation, my daughter's like, I can't find my keys. And uh, I said, oh, don't worry, I had them last night, I'll go, I'll go get them. So I go into my, my uh, closet, and they were nowhere in sight. And I started thinking, you know what, I don't remember pulling them out of my pocket when I walk in, because, you know, I have a system, and I don't remember ever seeing them. And then I start looking, and then I get on the quad, and I start riding around everywhere. She's looking for her keys, trying to get to work. Finally, she just goes to work. And then I look for another two hours, and then I text her. I said, I think I burned your keys. <laughs> I'm picking out brush. I think I grabbed the lantern, and I think I just put She goes, Dad, how do you burn my keys? And she texts her mom and said, I don't have keys. Dad, burn them. And it's like... <laughs> It's like your, your father is, is a mess. Don't ever give him anything when he has a one tracked mind. And that's what I was doing. So I should have said, expect good help. God is the most gracious helper you can possibly have. Every idol uses you, abuses you, and takes advantage of you. God gives you everything you need, everything you desire. Everything you want. First Samuel seven ten says, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before, the, before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them there, as far as below as beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. All the days of Samuel, they were receiving help. We're going to talk about Saul here come September. Samuel's still in charge, even when Saul's in charge. And they're still receiving help in that process. We should expect that from the power of God by embracing this message. Number six, expect Restoration. Expect to be completely restored. Again, look at this. Put away your gods. Serve him only. Pray. Repent. Go through the mediator. Expect help. And expect restoration because it come coming your way. The cities of the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So there is a sermon that Samuel gives. You want to change your country. You want to change your life. You want to stop being ruled by the idols of this world. Put away your gods. Put away the things that are ruling you. Put away the things that are sending you, making you. Put away the things that you have that you can't get rid of because you're addicted to them. Serve him and him only. Use him as a mediator. Pray to him and repent. The power of God's coming your way. Now, if you look at a parallel passage, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, it says this, and it's the exact parallel passage. My people who are called by my name. What is that? Serve him only. Humble themselves. What is that? Humility in Samuel's sermon and pray. What is that? Just pray, what Samuel says to do, and seek my face. What is that? Go through the mediator and turn from their wicked ways. What is that? Repent, and I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sins, and I'll heal their land. Samuel gives us a gospel three thousand years from now, but a thousand years before Christ even came, and it's the same gospel. It saves you and it saves a, a nation. It's the power of God that comes with this gospel that Samuel gave. It's for you and your salvation. And it's also for the salvation of our country. According to Second Chronicles 7.14, when people lay down their lives and make sure that it happens. God, thank you 3,000 years ago, Samuel gave truth. He didn't give the desires of their heart or sexual passions and their, their um, greed, their anger, all the stuff that they, they want as a human being. He gave truth. And when he gave truth, God, you showed up. And when you showed up, life happened. You helped and you restored I just pray, God, that every person in this room, God, would be restored by this powerful gospel that Samuel gave. I pray that our country, God, would be restored by this gospel that Samuel gave, knowing that it is the source of our life, our life and our country's life. Thank you, God, for being so gracious to us and so merciful to us, and that we can turn, God, from our ways, and you will save. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.